Silence is one part of speech. The war cry of wind down a mountain pass, another. A stranger's voice echoing through lonely valleys. A lover's voice rising so close, it's your own tongue. These are keys to cipher. The way the high hawk's key unlocks the throat of the sky and the coyote's yip knocks it shut. The way the aspen's bells conform to the breeze while the rapid's drums define resistance. Sage speaks with one voice, pinion with another. Rock, wind her hand and water her brush, spells and then scatters her demands. Some notes tear and pebble our paths. Some notes gather. The bank we map our lives around. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of Commonplace. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. You just heard writer, scholar, professor, editor, and mother, Camille Dungy, reading her poem, Language, from her book, What to Eat, What to Drink, What to Leave for Poison. I'd been wanting to sit down and have a long conversation with Camille Dungy for years now, and I'm thrilled that on December 10th, 2021, Camille, inside her closet in her home in Colorado, and I, in my small bedroom in New York City, were able to record this conversation that I'm eager to share with you. In this episode, Camille and I talk about our late December birthdays, setting intentions, the joys and difficulties of embracing the writing life while parenting, Camille's experience of being grounded by COVID-19 after years of intensive traveling. Of course, we talk about Camille's indispensable poems, prose, and editorial work, We talk about her published work, especially her memoir or book of essays, Guidebook to Relative Strangers, Journeys into Race, Motherhood, and History, and the book of prose she's working on now, Soil, The History of a Black Mother's Garden, due out from Simon & Schuster in 2023. Camille Dungy is the author of four fabulous collections of poetry. Trophic Cascade, Smith Blue, Suck on the Marrow, and What to Eat, What to Drink, What to Leave for Poison. Dungy's honors include the 2021 Academy of American Poets Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, an American Book Award, two Northern California Book Awards, two NAACP Image Award nominations, fellowships from the NEA in both poetry and prose. Dungy is currently a university distinguished professor in the English department in Colorado State University. Back in 2005, Dungy and Matt O'Donnell founded From the Fish House, an audio archive of emerging poets created to celebrate, validate, and share the work of emerging writers in the public forum. In 2009, Dungy and O'Donnell, along with Jeffrey Thompson, compiled and edited From the Fish House, an anthology of poems that sing, rhyme, resound, syncopate, alliterate, and just plain sound great. Check out From the Fish House website. There, you can hear poems read aloud by former Commonplace guests Jericho Brown, 
Gabrielle Calvacaresi, Tina Chang, Victoria Chang, Sarah Gambito, Ross Gay, Ariel Greenberg, Terrence Hayes, Tahimba Jess, Ilya Kaminsky, Sarah Manguso, Kate Marvin, Erica Meitner, John Murillo, Molly Peacock, Richard Sykin, Gerald Stern, and perhaps more importantly, you can hear poems read by so many wonderful poets I haven't yet had the pleasure of talking with for the podcast. In addition to this editorial work, Dungey was assistant editor on Gathering Ground, celebrating Kaveh Kanem's first decade, which came out in 2006 and was the first national publication to feature the work of Kaveh Kanem's fellows and faculty. Camille Dungey is the editor of Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry, the first anthology to bring African-American poetry about the natural world to national attention. I cannot overstate the importance of Black nature. It was and continues to be a literary event that has informed and changed the teaching, writing, and thinking of its grateful readers. It has inspired conferences and readings and scholarship. For example, on the last day of October 2019, I was lucky enough to attend Black Poetics and Environmental Memory, a reading and conversation featuring Ed Roberson and Tiana Clark at Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois. I was in Chicago to attend the Third Coast Conference, a conference of audio makers with former Commonplace producer Katie Fernelius. In the before times, I would try when traveling to set up as many readings, speaking events, and commonplace recordings as possible, especially with poets who lived in the places I was visiting and were unlikely to pass through New York City. I was planning at that time to produce a themed episode of Commonplace about Black eco-poetics with Camille Dungy and several poets from the Black Nature Anthology and was planning to record the part with Camille at AWP 2020. So I was thrilled that the sponsoring bodies, Northwestern University Kaplan Humanities Institute Memorializing Dialogue Series and the Poetry and Poetics Colloquium, granted me permission to record Roberson and Clark's event. I very much hope to one day record individual conversations with Ed Roberson and Tiana Clark, both of whom are poets whose work I adore, and I'd love to have an entire episode on Black eco-poetics. But the past few years have taught me that everything keeps changing, life is short, and that poetry and other forms of grace should be shared early and often, not saved for a rainy day or more appropriate context. So, all Commonplace patrons will get access to the audio file of Clark and Roberson's readings on our Patreon site, as well as extra poems that Camille Dungy recorded for us and a fabulous writing exercise by Dungy for rejuvenating cliches. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will also receive a copy of one of the following books, Trophic Cascade, Smith Blue, Suck on the Marrow, What to Eat, What to Drink, What to Leave for Poison, Guidebook to Relative Strangers, all by Camille Dungy courtesy of Wesleyan University Press, Southern Illinois University Press, Red Hen Press, and W.W. Norton, Magic City by Yusuf Kumanyaka, and The Grand Permission 
New Writings on Poetics and Motherhood, edited by Patricia Denstry and Brenda Hillman, both courtesy of Wesleyan University Press, and Women Poets on Mentorship, Efforts and Affections, edited by Ariel Greenberg and Rachel Zucker, courtesy of University of Iowa Press. Commonplace has no ads, no corporate sponsorship, and is made possible by the support of listeners like you. To find out how to become a Commonplace patron or a member of the Commonplace Book Club, please visit our website, commonpodcast.com, or go to patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast. Commonplace has partnered with an individual who wishes to remain anonymous. In honor of this episode, $250 will be donated in honor of Camille Dungy to an organization of her choice. Camille has chosen Ironbound Community Corporation. Founded in 1969, Ironbound Community Corporation's mission is to engage and empower individuals, families, and groups in realizing their aspirations and together work to create a just, vibrant, and sustainable community. Two more quick things before we go to the conversation. Even though Omicron had already been detected in South Africa, Camille and I talk about COVID as if it's almost over, or at least abating. Within weeks of this recording, huge numbers of people in the United States were infected, hospitals were becoming overwhelmed, and millions of U.S. Americans were calling in sick. Many, many people suffered and are still suffering physically, emotionally, mentally, and financially, from this new wave. I hope the relative lightness of our discussion of COVID, our hopefulness, our expectation of getting back to the in-person life, will not read as flippant or callous. As always, these episodes are a snapshot of two particular human beings talking on a particular day. Second, You'll hear planes flying over Washington Heights on this recording, and you'll hear, well, you might not have noticed it if I didn't point it out, but I sound off. On December 10th, I was really struggling. In the last episode with Judy Gron, I mentioned health problems that I was having. Around Thanksgiving, I started to experience brain fog, worse than usual insomnia, and a precipitously downward mood spiral. Two months later, I'm doing a lot better. Still not great, but much, much better. I think it's important to talk about my physical and mental health experiences of this past year and how these have affected Commonplace. But I don't want to distract from this amazing episode or the conversations with novelist Tori Peters and poet Douglas Kearney that I have recorded even before I recorded this with Camille. So I'm going to record a separate personal update and upload it to Patreon. For now, I wish each of you peace, health, and ease in making or completing whatever intentions you might set for yourself. Here's Camille. Dungy. Okay, so I reread Guidebook to Relative Strangers, Journey into Race, Motherhood, and History. So your birthday is coming up, 
And I know this from your memoir book of essays. I turned 50 in just a few weeks before the end of the year. And I think you are turning 49 in a few weeks. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you say in the book, and I love this, that instead of making New Year's resolutions, you like to have birthday intentions. And I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. as we approach your 49th birthday, how you're feeling about this time of year, about your birthday, about turning 49, and if you have any birthday intentions that you'd like to share. That is a fantastic question, and it is, in fact, one that I have begun to be thinking about. So I've, like, started at, like, what do I want? You know, like, what do I want for myself and and how I present in the world um, for the for the coming year and I think I'm a little bit contrary in response to this COVID times because I I there's a lot about the enforced stillness and and homeboundness that I really have relished mm. and um and I've and I've needed I didn't I didn't realize how much I needed it and it's going like this kind of the ease of oh but I'm not going to get on a plane or I'm not going to go out to this event is disappearing as everybody in my family is vaccinated now and the people in my community are vaccinated and um, and things are safer in that way. And so now I have to go back to being like, oh, I, I do or do not want to go into these spaces. And now it has to come from me as opposed to my just being like, well, you know, the Delta, I can't go out. You know, like I can't... <laughs> I mean, Omicron, and then eventually there'll be, like, Zeta Pi Epsilon or whatever is going to come. Like, they'll they'll be there to some extent. But, but I really, I think that this is it. I really need to be able to say with more clarity how much of myself I want to put out in the world <laughs> mm-hmm. um, versus how much of myself I want to keep to myself <laughs> and and my family and that's been a balance that has tipped outward for the last quarter century of my life and and I'm about I'm getting close to hitting a new quarter century and if I want to be rethinking that this seems like a really good time to figure out how to say yes to what I really truly want to say yes to which means saying no to a lot of things which which is hard and which, you know, women aren't trained to say no. Um, people of color, it's difficult to say no because opportunities are scarce. And you say no, then you do you lose out on all future opportunities that will come. And But just remembering that saying no to things that are not fully feeding the direction I want to move the next few years of my life will leave space for saying yes to what I what I do want 
it's kind of beautiful um, to think about it in connection to the previous birthday intentions that you mentioned. Uh, one was turn down offers from men that sound too good to be true. Um, um, stop worrying about things over which you have no control. Boy, that sounds like one that uh, is still around during the age of COVID. Uh, and yeah, patience. don't I don't I say in that like sometimes some years I have to remediate. <laughs> yes, yes. And then you I talked about got there. right. You talked about having to work on patience for multiple years. Um, you know that's really mm-hmm. a big one. And then I'm thinking about the fact that like you know this the this uh, guidebook uh, was written. Uh, over the course of uh, your daughter Callie's first three years of life. And I believe you say that by the time she had turned three or before her third birthday, she had been on 46 airplanes with you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I read that yesterday, I was really thinking about what has Camille's life been like in these past almost two (laughs) years when you've been so to speak, grounded, where, when travel was such an important part of your, of your writing, of, of your mothering, of your, of your being. Like, Just and, my existence. And, yeah. My existence. Yeah, I think if, if the, the week, the week that this all really got going in the U.S., I took my mother to Washington, D.C., and we left, and the, the, the driver who took us to the airport is a friend of ours, and he was like, this is ridiculous, you know, it's all just, like, just fabricated, blah, blah, uh, not fabricated, but exaggerated, you know, it was just an exaggerated kind of thing, um, on, that was probably, like, Wednesday, you know, on Wednesday, we're like flying out and this is all exaggerated. And we get to DC and do the event that night, the NBA shut down and Disney shut closed. And I grew up in Southern California. So I said to my mom, I was like, Disney, Disney had not ever closed. It was coming up to its 65th anniversary and had never closed and like, and it, I was like, this is serious, you know, not to mention the billions of dollars that the NBA let go and that this is real. Um, and, and then as we left, we went to the Smithsonian um, and um, that, the day we went to the Smithsonian and the next day the Smithsonian closed, you know. <laughs> And I had told my mother before we were leaving, oh, hey, there's a few cases in D.C. that are proving that this is community spread. And so, you know, if you want to cancel, I'll be invited back to D.C. I'll be going back to D.C. at some time in the next, you know, sometime this year. And we could just do this trip again. Right. But thank goodness mm-hmm. we did it. We saw her sister. Part of the reason to go to D.C. is there's a image in the um, Smithsonian Museum of African American History of my mother's aunt, like that my mother hadn't seen yet. Um, And so I'm glad because as it turns out, it was not just a few months, you know, it turned in. I feel like if it had been as short as I had thought, 
I would just go back to business as usual. But because it has lasted so long, it takes some time to build a new practice, right? It takes time to build new habits. And I have, in that time, built new practices and new habits. And I've been able to sit in them and realize that they are beneficial to me in in some real ways. One of the big things for me is I had always thought that I was a poor sleeper with erratic sleep habits. But what it was, was I just had really bad sleep hygiene. Like I was never, I was like never in the same time zone um, for my body to regulate itself. And um, so my, I went to sleep whenever and I woke up whenever and because my body never knew. But after, um, it was about nine months in and then I was like, Every night at around 9.30, I would be tired and I would be asleep by 10.30 at the latest. And I wake up now really early and I write in the morning before my daughter goes to school and, and then it starts all over again. I've never, I've never had a steady practice and habit like that. Mm. And, um, and it's, it's good, you know? It's good for me health-wise. It's good for the words that I bring. And I'm working on a long prose project, so having that kind of continuity and regularity is useful for that because I can hold all these pieces of the mini strings together because I'm not traveling over four four different time zones in two weeks. Mm. Were you working on the prose piece before COVID or like was it was there the opening and possibility for a longer, more sustained project because of the switch in practice? So I had that Guggenheim and I was gonna, ha- I had 2020 off. I wasn't, I didn't have to teach. I had um, really, really had pared down my travel, but I wouldn't have, you know, that's a thing that I know to be true. I'd been saying, oh, I'm not going to travel, but then there would be these offers that would be too good to turn down. And then I would still have been on the plane all the time, but I couldn't do that. And so I think whatever it was that I thought I was writing in in December of 2019 became something very very different by April of 2020 because of because of COVID and because of being grounded and so it really it it ends up being a book about what home is what mm. home looks like and so that it you know, it's a counterpoint in a sense to Guidebook to Relative Strangers, which is really a book about what it means to how how I learned about who I was by going out in the world and meeting all these strangers and having those connections. And now it's like how I learn about who I am from the soil and the people in, in my own family, in my own community. So it's the book I needed to write. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep saying that, you know, people are like, I'm so sorry you had such a crappy Guggenheim year because it was, uh, you know, like it, that's not the dream of the Guggenheim year. But I believe that what it ended up being was not the blessing that I, that I asked for or that I thought I wanted, but it was the blessing that I needed. Mm. Um, and, and that being able to like see that and, and, and really accept that. And that, that sometimes the blessings that you need come with a, like a lot of, they don't come easily, you know, like, I think that that's a, that's this kind of, misperception that blessings equal ease Mm -hmm. right 
but but many many of the blessings that are are the most important and that we value the most they come at cost and and it's and it's figuring out how to hold that cost that makes what 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 benefit comes all the more precious Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't wait for this book to come out. Um, how far along are you? Does it have a title? Is this still what you're actively working on? Do you think that you're, that this writing practice that you've developed, which I'm not surprised is really deeply connected to the sleeping practice. Do you think it will continue as you start to go back out into the world? Uh, it, I'm in the process of revision now so like the difference between like the writing in the moment of the thing and like the then standing back and making something that's less diary and more art diaries can be artful but but I I want I want I want to like a I want to lens a perspective that stepping back and doing one more major revision will allow me to do which just takes longer with prose than it does with with poetry for me so um, probably 2023, uh, the book should be out. Uh, the title is Soil, A History of a Black Mother's Garden. Oh. The, the history, get your articles right. Soil, the history of a black mother's garden is the title. And so much like I booked Relative Strangers, much like all of my work, it's, it's very grounded in a kind of environmental ethic. It is rooted in thinking about family and history and oh, who we are because of where we are in space and time and relationship. Um, and also some like information about gardens. Mm-hmm. of all kinds is it in the same form as guidebook to relative strangers mm, no <laughs> um it started out that way it did it started out kind of separate but with guidebook i there there are two essays in guidebook that I thought, oh, these will be my memoir. Like, these will be my kind of, I thought, like, like operating instructions, that Anne Lamont book. That's what I, like, had in mind when I first, and it was the, the, the essay Lap Child and A Shade North of Ordinary, which are essays that describe my first long trip with Callie while I was where I was giving a reading and I had this nursing infant with me and and it was crazy and it was like we went to this like way northern Maine it was a a, almost you know a full day of travel and really overnight like almost 36 hours of travel really to get to it with this very small child and um and so I thought that like each this chapter of this was going to be like one more of the trips. But one of the things about writing anything is that when you figure out, like you've actually said what needs to be said, that, mm. that there's this idea that you can stretch something out for a whole book, but 
people don't need to hear that story or or like that story in just like with a green dress on, you know, like <laughs> over and over again. Um, and so it, as that essay collection really came together, it needed a, different pieces. And, and that has kind of been similar as I've gone back to look at soil and how to really create a, a, a radiating whole that doesn't feel like you're being force marched and it doesn't feel like things are just repeating themselves. And so writing into form, whether I'm writing poetry or prose, like writing into form, like finding the form of the material for me is, is the scariest, most exciting, um, most challenging most rewarding part of writing for me always Mm. the the original drafting and the kind of inspiration and the kind of spilling onto the page is fun and necessary but it's it's not the totality of writing for me so much of it is finding the shape and the form that that each piece needs to be there might be people listening who are like wait why did you take your daughter on 46 plane rides in the first three years? And and correct me if I'm getting my details wrong. You published four books in the space of like uh, practically a year or maybe 18 months and gave birth to your daughter during that same period of time. And so I think that's really important to say also like that that you had this incredibly prolific period of time two books of poetry uh it was your second and your third collections of poetry and two books that you'd edited all came out right around that time I feel like I need to say here and with the blessing piece and with the I want to say yes to what I want to say yes to and no to what I want to say no to like all that comes from a position of of a kind of privilege like there's so many people in the world who do not get to choose um what they say yes to and what they say no to like that I, I that is so important for me to say out loud every time I say I am going to make these choices and and therefore, when I do make those choices and when I do choose writing as something I value, right, this is, that's a conversation that I have out loud in Guidebook to Relative Strangers. People cannot understand why I'm doing this because it was, in fact, insane. Part of why I was doing it was because I was the primary breadwinner at the time. My husband was completing his doctoral degree and for him to be working would have slowed down that process for him and and so that was the decision that we made in partnership was that I would you know take on the the financial aspects of supporting us and I had a way of doing it which was supporting these four books that I promoted and also I'd written these four books or edited them and I wanted them to get the love that they deserved and bless their hearts. They're all still trooping along um, very well. And, and so those were decisions, but it was also a decision that I made to value my art and to value my craft and the work that I did in the world and not, 
not choose another logical decision, which would have been I'll stay at home, teach, get a job here, do something else that won't require that, but would also mean turning my back on my art or turning my back on those books and those projects. And I chose not to do that, right? Life is always a series of decisions. And I like to, I like to think about mine. I like to think about why I make the decisions and what are the, what are the historical valences around me that push me in certain directions and not others, uh, opened certain doors to me and not others. What does the future look like based on the decisions I make? I, I want to think about that in my daily life. And then I end up thinking about that on the page in, in, in so much of what I write. Those, those kinds of questions show up again and again. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think it's, it's, it's exceedingly important. You know, I'm thinking of Susan Sontag and Dorothea Lange immediately come to mind as women who maybe had to, maybe chose to, maybe both be separated from their children for long periods of time in order to continue their work. Or, you know, the many, 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 many more women who did not even have access to choose creative work, but were separated from their children because of all of the horrific ways in which women have been separated from their children across history. And I think this comes back to what you said in the beginning, right? That, that a blessing, it was a blessing to be able to choose to make money in this way, to make money as a, a creative person, to support your work, to be able to bring your daughter with you. But it wasn't easy. It also, I think, was a political statement and was a kind of work in and of itself. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm bringing my daughter. You were a black woman traveling the world with your child in tow, needing and forcing the world to accommodate you and your motherhood, uh, not always easy, to spaces that were sometimes, you know, entirely white or largely white, not sure what you were going to find on the other end, you know, not sure whether these strangers were friendly or potentially harmful. That's not a question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a set of facts. It yeah. is a set of facts. <laughs> that I I will acknowledge and and agree with in in all ways and um and you know those those two women you name in the beginning Sontag and and Lang I really have the benefit of the work the the radical often subtle and then often really in your face work of so many people before who have made these spaces. And so one of the first trips that we took, that my daughter and I took, was to visit Pittsburgh at the invitation of the poet Toy Derricotte, who had she 
she was like, oh, of course, you know, she had been a, a mother with a child and, and like the, the, the difference in, in the intervening, I guess probably 20 years, maybe even more than that between when she would have had to make the kinds of decisions that she had to make. And that I, like she, she and so many other parents, not just, not just women, so many other parents were really excited. Um, but I remember the first, the first work trip I took her on, um, was to Washington DC where I was doing some, some work for the NEA and I had my baby, my, I think she was four months old. She was four months old. And it was like days of judging kind of work. So she couldn't be with me. My sister came down and took the baby during the day. And then would I was nursing and would come to the, the it was the old post office, which is now a Trump hotel, um, and to that space and like bring the baby to me. And I would nurse and then, and then Catherine, my sister, and the baby would go off again. And the women in the NEA were like, there's a nursing lounge now. Like two of them had used the nursing lounge. Uh, the other two had had to like pump in the bathroom, right? Like it was, and that was a like a seven year process, right? Like from the pumping in the bathroom to the we're hidden in the nurses' lounge with the pump to my sister got a chance to be with her niece and flew down from Vermont to DC to like care. And we could like manage that, like that kind of progression of, of being able to incorporate the realities of, of family in a cu country, in a culture that gives no, no family medical leave. You don't have guaranteed family medical leave. You don't have um, the kinds of support. There's not really good childcare support. That's another reason, like, our, my, my husband and my schedules were so wacky that childcare was going to be hard anyway. But, like, when it got to, the like, around the time that my daughter was going to have to, you know, start preschool – and I was like, oh, there's a little preschool like around the corner from us. It was a Montessori school around the corner. Like, let me just like find out how much that cost, right? $38,000 a year tuition, mm. which means like a lump sum payment of $38,000 for a three-year-old. That So we weren't going to be able to do that, you know, like... <laughs> Like that kind of like what what that says about the discrepancy of access for child care, for child education, for early starts of what it is that preschool offers to children. And so you'd like from the very start, you've got this entire gap in access. This has the, in a way this has nothing to do with poetry and writing, but I, but I feel like in a way it has everything to do with it because if we, if we continue to accept that kind of discrepancy and that the, like the fact that childcare and time with your family and a decent education 
and um, schools without lead pipes in the water, <laughs> you know, like that, that, that is not, is not generally accessible. Then you're also saying that you're continuing to live in a world where some people get to have beauty, some people get to have leisure, some people get to have literature and art and a time to contemplate it and make it and think it, and some people don't. And I, I acknowledge that that's the world in which we live, but I resist that fact every day. You know, and I resist that in having chosen to teach at a at a at a public university. I resist it in the fact that I I really try to make my writing writing that lots of people can access. Right, like it's really important to me that my writing can be read. Yeah. Yeah. And also the travel, like the like going, like the traveling at the time. Like I, the other, another thing that I love about this time is like the Zoom revolution of like the Zoom readings and the, the, the webinar events and things like that. Just the, like the, 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 the wider, broader ability for, for people who, don't live in a major metro area where they would have access to going to public readings or don't live in a university town to be able to get a hold of it. When Matt O'Donnell and I founded From the Fish House 2005, mm-hmm. which is now a very long time ago, which is crazy because it, you know, we are still the same age, Matt and I are. <laughs> um, <laughs> At that time, it was really, really hard to find the work of emerging writers on the web. Like, that's, that's impossible, probably, for people who are just, like, are with, within the last 10 years um, gotten access to the web. But at the time, like, it was tough. Like, you had the Poetry Foundation, and that was, like, established writers. And, and you had the Academy, and then... And then that was it. And we just really wanted to make a space. Matt had a commute and he would listen to poems and try and memorize poems back and forth. And, and he was like, but he couldn't get, he was driving, right? And so he needed the, the audio and he couldn't get the audio for like people who were his peers. Mm-hmm. And so we got together and, and, and did this and, and made the anthology and made the website and, and like, you know, help to open up this space for validating the role of emerging writers in in that kind of public forum, but also act that that like other emerging writers could access, right? So for me, like it's so much, it's so frequently about access. Like who gets to read poetry? Who gets to hear poets talk about what goes into poems? And and what's the difference for a young writer 
hearing somebody who's published 12 books and won a Pulitzer, which, yes, you need to hear what those people have to say because they have wisdom to share. But you got a long road to get to that place, right? So what 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 wisdom do you get from somebody who's just published their first book or their second book or, or is mid-career when you're mid-career? You know, like what are the different kinds of benefits of hearing a diversity of voices and a diversity of experiences? And so, so much of what, what I guess I've put my life into is like expanding that, right? Like just expanding the universe of of who gets to be speaking and who gets to be publishing and what they get to be talking about and to whom. So I know from emails and social media messages that there are people listening to the podcast before COVID, definitely during COVID, who are parents, who are emerging writers who don't have the money to go to an MFA program, who don't feel safe for many different reasons to go to an MFA program. I hear this story over and over again of moments like the one you you mention um, in your book. You say, Toy Derricotte said the early days of motherhood were made less difficult for her by a community of helpful women. And some of us had this, some of us didn't, too many of us didn't. Um, some of us were lucky enough to have a moment with Toy Derricott or with Sharon Olds or with Kamiko Han or with these other mother poets who, living mother poets who came up to us, whether we had our baby with us at a reading and said, yes, yes you know, who, who told us either in their writing or in person what their experiences were like as young mothers who gave us a sense of this. But you're doing that now, you know, for so many people who, who are not able for so many different reasons to find a community of mothers in which they can raise their children or a community of writers in which they can give birth to and raise and nurture their poems or their creative practice. Um, because it's, it's not just mothers who need a community of mothers. It's, you know, all of us who need a community. Um, so I, I was hoping you would read um, your poem, Language, but if there's another poem, oh, I mean, I have so many of these poems printed out. Would you actually read, there are these moments of permission? You also could read Frequently Asked Questions number six, now that you have a child, how has your writing <laughs> practice changed? I'm like looking at all of them. All of them would be, uh, you know, perfect right now. There are these moments of permission. The experience that the like... I don't know, the moment when the poem came, I was flying to see Toy Derricotte in Pittsburgh. It was this trip to go see Toy Derricotte in Pittsburgh. And we, um, we, we flew through this crazy storm. Mm. It was just like an insane storm. And Callie, I think at that time, was like nine or ten months old. And, sh and the train, it's, the plane is like turbulence, 
ridiculous turbulence. Everybody around, even these seasoned business travelers, are gripping the 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 arm rails of the seats because it was just that bad. But the kid, she's a lap child and she's bouncing on my lap. So it's like a horsey ride for her. (laughs) It's the most delightful thing ever. And so there's like all this panicked adults and this giggling infant who then passes out, just passed out by the time the beverage service was able to come around. And I jotted this poem on the napkin of my water as a note, you know? I was like, this is just a note and I will expand on it later. And when later came, I realized it just needed, it just needed arrangement on the page. It didn't need, I didn't need to add anything. Mm. There are these moments of permission. Between raindrops, space, certainly, but we call it all rain. I hang in the undrenched intervals while Callie is sleeping. My old self necessary and imperceptible as air. Mm. I see Toy Derricotte in this poem and I'm thinking about um, natural birth. I'm thinking about mm-hmm. how it begins to open up uh, formally. If I want you to see anything, it may be rain, like the way that like rain falls at a kind of cascading um, motion across the page. Um, and there's space, you know, between raindrops space certainly I wanted the poem to have have visual space that you go from one one little drop of this information to the next so that when I drafted it it was just like you know a scrawl like just one sentence scrawl but then when I put it typed it in I realized that it needed space between each phrase and and the words on the page Yeah, I I mean, I also see, I think part of why this poem is so meaningful to me and why it makes me think of Toy Derricotte is I see it both as about rain and also this incredible sort of objective correlative of motherhood too, right? Like we call Mm -hmm. it all motherhood, but... Is it the space between the mother and the child? Is it the umbilical cord that then gets cut? Is it the, you know, and I, and I, and, and actually that image is really resonant to me. I think even though I didn't know that you wrote it on a napkin with Callie asleep on your lap on a plane, I can feel I hang in the undrenched intervals while Callie is sleeping. I know that she's close. I know that 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 space between the space of time, the space of quiet, the space, the physical space between mother and child is brief. And it is both in that space that the attachment lives, right? Because you only need attachment when there's separation. Mm-hmm. when it's not yourself 
but also that that's where the creation is is allowed to live and all of that and i'm and thinking about um toy's book natural birth and how the sort of philosophy or rhetorical metaphysical investigations into the self into the eye come towards the end of the book when the form starts to open up uh where the becomes lowercase where the where the self and the baby become fluid and also and attached and separate in the recollection of what that birth was like for her the lead up to it the birth itself the you know maybe even the 17 year period in which she held that poem inside of her Mm -hmm. before she was Mm -hmm. able to speak it uh, onto the page. I love my old self necessary and imperceptible as air. You get so subsumed, right? Especially in those early, early months or years of, of, of raising a child. It's like, who are you even, you know? And as, as we've said already, like I was, this was really like that, this was really this moment when I was, um, um, I was emerging as a writer, right? Like as a, as a person who was like known as a writer, um, and a poet and, but like, happened at the same time that I had this child. So like, I could have just, I've like, I could have disappeared into any other new identity, Mm -hmm. but there would be these moments where I'd be like, Oh, there's Camille. (laughs) Oh, I recognize this person. Um, and, and being able to come into those moments of recognition, that space between the drench, um, Mm. like, that it's real like that that whoever that Camille is is real and needs and needs to be a touchstone again and again I think you're you're absolutely right about toy toy is always toy is like um insistent fierce honesty and her apparent apparent simplicity which is not you know like it looks like her poems that just like look like really easy right like but she crafts the heck out of those poems you know but they just like they just feel like just like these immediate immediacy I think they like these immediate confessions that that is absolutely plus she's just a a great human being (laughs) so that is also like a fact I think another um woman poet who's in this poem and um and I, I had to wrestle with a little bit and then just finally be like, whatever, mm-hmm. like sometimes our, um, our models are right there. It's like, I have my mother's face and I wear my great aunt's ring and it fits my hand perfectly because I have her hand. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's fine. Like there's just these parts of us that show up in us and as us, but are also somebody else's. And it's the word permission in in the title which was also in the scrawl right there are these moments of permission was like in what I wrote down on my napkin and 
sometime in the revision process of this poem, I was like, oh, there's that Brenda Hillman book. Oh. The Grand Permission. Yes. Um, which I, I, I know and I love and is in my body um, as an important Grand Permission. For those of you who are listening who don't know, it, it's this incredible um, anthology of, of poems about motherhood um, that is really great. Who's our co-editor? Uh, Pat- Patricia Denstree. I, I yes. might not be pronouncing yes. it cr- properly, um, mm-hmm. but holy cow, that book is, and uh, I'll let you finish, and then I have something to say. <laughs> no, I mean, that's really it. And, but, and then Brenda Hillman, of course, ha- her poems, her poems do really play with the page so frequently, and they um, have these kinds of um, radicalized ways of looking and breathing and letting in space. And so I know that like, maybe those two were sitting next to me on either side, you know, the kind of like muse spirits of, of Toy and Brenda on either side, which like, you could do worse. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, absolutely. So, okay. So this is actually, you know, I want to talk about your poetry forever and ever and ever, but we, we absolutely need to talk about your work as an editor. Um, and specifically, you know, not to pick a favorite child because we know that's not good. Um, I only solve, have one, so yeah, I never had to make I was going to yeah, say, yeah, you solve like... that problem by having only one. <laughs> Is that why you chose to have only one? I don't know. But... There are a number of reasons, but that, that, that's in the list. It's in okay. the top Top 15. All right. Well, you have many books. And so it's what to eat, what to drink, what to leave for poison. And then um, suck on the marrow. Let's see. Let's do order. What to eat, what to drink, what to leave for poison was 2006. And then in the in December of 2009, Black Nature. Um, four centuries of African-American nature poetry. And then in February of 2010, the From the Fish House anthology of poems that sing, rhyme, resound, syncopate, alliterate, and just plain sound great. And then in June of 20... 2010. 10. Yep. I, have a, I had a person. Mm-hmm. And then in... Um, and then sometime in that, in 2010 somewhere, that was February anyway, was Suck on the Marrow, like a, a, another collection. So we had in 2009, we had, um, we had Black Nature, and then we had the From the Fish House, and then we had Suck on the Marrow, and, and, then, and then I had a person. Um, like, that all ran up together. And then in 2017... I published Trophic Cascade um, in February, and then in June, Guidebook to Relative Strangers came out. Right. So, like, a lot of, like, multiple births and twinning, which is another reason why I didn't have more than one child, because I was pretty sure if I had another one, I would then immediately have three, because I would, like, <laughs> I was just, like, sure that um, I would just spontaneously have twins. Um, okay. Right. So... <laughs> 
I had imagined that one of the questions I was going to ask you and one of the things I really wanted you to talk about um, was your work as an editor, which is clearly related to your beautiful speech you gave earlier about accessibility, about creating a community, a space, a place uh, for writers to come together. Those of us who have edited anthologies, uh, I mean, I know after editing, um, after co-editing with Arielle Greenberg, Women Poets on Mentorship, I swore I would never do another anthology again. And that book I worked on when I was pregnant with Judah and those, uh, Judah was born and the book was published, you know, right around the same time. And that book was just crazy making. So I think it's the, I don't want to scare people who want to do anthology editorial work, important, deep editorial work, but it, I also want to acknowledge how difficult it almost always is, how intense it almost always is, the labor that it requires. And I also want to say that your book, Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry, from my vantage point, it's not just, as you said earlier, oh, and those four books sort of keep marching along and they're, you know, they're doing good work. This one, I, I don't say this lightly, has changed poetry, has changed the literary scene, the literary world. It, it not only made a space to bring together Black poets, living and dead, uh, who wrote about nature, not just bring together the poems that were created in that way, but created an entirely different way of thinking about what is nature, what is nature poetry, what is the relationship between, now it's not one thing, the relationship between blackness and nature poetry. And it's, it's opened up an entirely, or it's, it had, it enlarged, articulated, and defined in a lot of ways the discourse around this. But can you talk about the creation of this anthology, uh, what it was like for you um, to edit it? And, and now, you know, because many anthologies come out, serve an important purpose, hopefully, and then kind of disappear. Mm -hmm. Not with Black nature, not at all. No, it's still it's still doing its it the work that it needs to do. I am very um I'm I'm really proud. I'm always proud to have brought that book into the world and and 
the the wake of change that came behind it is um, staggering sometimes, really, to see. Um, people ask me sometimes if I would do another volume of it. And I never say never because you just don't know what circumstances are right, but not right now because when I'm, so let's see, I started collecting the poems for Black Nature in 2006. I contracted for the book in 2006 and, um, I've told the story before, but it's it's a pretty important perspective to think about, much like I was talking about with with Matt and I with the Fish House um, website. That like what what like kind of wasn't available, what wasn't widely available. Like these are the things. Like the moment things become widely available, like the zipper, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the zipper is an invention of the 20th century. That is mind boggling to me sometimes. Like because the zipper is everywhere, right? But like. It has not always been everywhere. And so the, those ones that you kind of think, oh, there was a before <laughs> where everything had to be fastened in all different kinds of ways. And then there was a zipper, right? <laughs> like these kinds of moments. And and, and Black nature ser- serves in that role. Like you can't kind of, you can't imagine if you've come into the world of, of poetry, particularly environmentally engaged poetry since Black Nature, like of course the things that are that are um, presented in it and the and the the writers who've come again out of the wake of that of that um, it's as if they've always been there. But when I had to do the literature review for the press to prove that this was a necessary book and that there weren't a whole bunch of other books like it and it would be a market value for them. Um, I was working in the, in, in the Bay Area, so I had access, as I'm a Stanford graduate, so I had access to the Stanford um, University Library, and my husband was working at Berkeley, so I had access to the Berkeley Library. To, like, essentially, I had access to all the books, right? Mm-hmm. All the books. <laughs> These two major research libraries. And I traveled to the Poets House in, DC, in New York. I traveled to the Emory African-American Poetry Collection that Kevin Young was curating at the time at Emory University. I traveled to one other major repository, which is slipping my mind right now. Like, just... I, I studied what was there and what I found in all of the major journals and anthologies of nature and environmental writing and published by 2006 were six poems by five black writers. That was it. It was like, we just didn't exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like nature writing Black people, no intersection. Um, except for that Langston Hughes poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, and a couple others, right? Like, that was it. But this was really confusing to me because my own personal, like, oh, it's in my computer because I've typed it because I want to understand how poems are built. My little personal collection had, you know, a good 40 45 poems so I had nine times as many poems just like I like this poem in my personal 
collection than all of these major libraries. Um, so then I had to go and I had to read journals and I had to read magazines and I had to read individual books. And um, I did a call. Um, I did like a guest editing gig and I did a, like a national call for people to send things in for the journal so that I could kind of get access to other writers who I weren't already published or who I didn't know and didn't know to look for. And, and I was able to compile almost 200 poems for this book and plenty more that, you know, could have been in, but for whatever reason, because of, you know, thematic overlap or I had to do some limits, you know, with certain writers, Lucille Clifton, Yusuf Komanyaka, Ed Roberson, I, uh, Marilyn Nelson. I had to like just put a hard limit on the number of poems by particular poets or, or it would just be the Lucille Clifton nature poem anthology. But she was never one of those five five poets, mm -hmm. right? Read Lucille Clifton's work. It's so deeply informed by a connection to the greater than human world. So deeply informed. Yusuf Komanyaka's Magic City, the, 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 another character might as well be the environment around Boogaloo, Louisiana, right? Like the environmental impact of the saw, the paper mill on that space. Like that's a huge, and like how he writes about the, the plants in, in the cow, right? Like all these things are, but because he's also writing about class and race and, um, and, and, and white supremacy and, and like history, all of those things put those poems in a different category. The, the beauty of, of what happened, like concurrent to the publication of Black Nature, partially because of conversations that I was having with other editors and other writers and other workers, and also partially just because of the exigencies of the world, the needs, like literature answers that our needs, right? So the needs of the readers and the writers is that there's a lot more intersection now between conversations about economics and conversations about class and social justice and environment and et cetera, which means there's a space for these writers who were not seen in when environmental writing had to be about some sort of contract with the wilderness, right? right? And so that change has happened concurrent with the publication of Black Nature. And so part of the reason why it would be really difficult for me now to do the same anthology is there's just too much. There, there are too many writers of color writing with this kind of openness and expansiveness. There's too many everybody's writing with this kind of openness and expansiveness to be able to do anything that was much more than just a cherry picking, which is, I think, one of the reasons why anthologies, as you say, do important work but then fall by the wayside because it's just... It, it, it ends up being, you remember when we were growing up, like around this time of year, you would start to see those infomercials for the albums that are like, buy the greatest hits of 1987 totally. for only 1999 plus shipping and handling. Like that's what ends up happening once there's a lot to choose from. You just get the like cherry, but you could get the country western greatest hits or the R&B and soul version, right? Like, and it's just like these like, 
But when I was doing Black Nature, because I had this historical perspective, I could really, you know, I could really show this body of work. And I, I chose to not present it chronologically, but to present it um, thematically and have the cycles as you move through the book so that you could really see how people have spoken consistently through time, but also how they've changed through time so that the, the, the quality of work isn't determined entirely by its moment in history, but by what's coming out of the work. And that too, you know, that process, you said that you wouldn't take on an editing a book again. I think part of why Suck on the Marrow and Smith Blue it was so important for me to publish those books and, and write them and publish them at the same time is that one of the things that happens when you edit anthologies like this, is like your own work can get lost and you can, you can stop thinking about yourself as the artisan. So I had to write while I was doing those books while I was doing the editing, I had to write. I had to write in conversation with what I was reading. I had to write in conversation with the process of organizing. The ways that I organized Smith Blue, which was published in 2011, is organized radically differently than Suck on the Marrow, which was, uh, which was published in 2010 and which was almost complete by the time I got into the editing process, where Smith Blue was kind of written in the, in the process. And, and I was thinking about order. I was thinking about how you arrange things together. I was thinking about like how people dive into a book on their own versus how I guide them. So Sucka and the Marrow is a novel in verse and you have to read that start to finish to really understand the characters and the movement and the progression and the, like the emotion of things. And then, then I'm, then I'm like pulling poems out of books of other people and putting them in my own order. And I'm was in the Smith blue is is organized in a in a much different way where there's space in Smith Blue for you to dip in and out. There is a cohesion in the organization, but it's a tonal cohesion as opposed to a narrative cohesion, which means that you can move in and out and kind of choose your own adventure in a different kind of way. And that, you know, so like the process to me of editing is really exciting when it can make me a different writer, mm-hmm. right? When like the conversations that I'm having with other people's writing feeds me and challenges me and makes me grow as a writer. I hadn't really thought of it in in that way, and it makes sense to me. Thinking about um, the first chapter or the first essay, the title of the first essay in Guide to Relative Strangers, which is called uh, Conscientious Outsider, or conscientious outsiders, which is such a fascinating term. And then I'm thinking about one of the epiphanies that occurs much later in the book when you're describing having to be carried off of a, of a mountain after a hike in which you break your ankle with these other these other writers and art artists and uh, uh, having to help you 
um, off this mountain um, about learning or, or figuring out how to be comfortable in your body outside and finding a, being a person who can live outside. And I was thinking about that's also an outsider, but English has, is so funny in these ways, right? Like, like when I said earlier, Oh, now you've been grounded, you know? So I meant obviously like grounded, like you can't fly anywhere. You haven't been able to fly anywhere, but also grounded means balanced, connected to the earth, uh, the grounded as opposed to, as it relates to, uh, circuitry, um, or uh, electricity, um, and so outsider, right? Like an outsider is both someone who doesn't have access to belonging, um, a certain kind of belonging or a certain kind of in-group. It's a, it's a person who is, is defined in a way by being outside of something. But then an outsider could also be someone who feels comfortable and feels in the outside in the in nature in 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 the space that is greater than the human world i think is the phrase you used earlier or at least that is that that can, a human who can comfortably not necessarily easily but comfortably survive in outside of the man made um, and I was thinking about black nature as it, as it kind of potentially connects to, uh, being forced to be an outsider or being afraid of being an outsider to be, to claiming or reclaiming or remaking the space of the outside as a safe uh, not safe as a, as a space of belonging, um, for you, um, for black bodies, for black people, uh, for creativity itself, in a sense, and I guess I, I guess the way to ask this question is after all of these books of poems, all of these books that you've edited, all of the editorial work that specifically that went into uh, sort of renaming these poems that have existed um, as Black Nature poems, do you think nature is a place and if so is it a is it the because so much of your work is also about home um but home doesn't exist in one place what is the relationship as as you conceive of it right now at this moment in your life between nature home outside, outsider, blackness, and belonging. Hmm. Yeah. 
I think a lot of this is informed by where I'm from, as is so often the case with all of us. And I'm 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 from the California, Colorado, the West. I'm from spaces where the line between the the made the human made and built and and what we understand to be natural is p- very very porous in 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 San Francisco if you want a really nice view you just have to climb a hill somewhere and then you like get a really nice view. In New York, if you want a nice view, you, you've got to have real estate. <laughs> you have to have access to a high floor. And, and those are really different, right? That, that's a really different um, sense of, of who can access what we understand to be nature um, in those two cities, right? Well, but I'm from the one where you could just walk up a hill and you can, everyone can have it. Um, that more democratic view, which means that the that my my language, my my sight lines, my like just so much of what I understand about how I describe the world and how I describe place and how do I describe my interactions with others um, are informed by that porosity. Are informed by the fact that. I look out the window of my house here in Colorado and I see the Rocky Mountains. They're right there. Like I can see them. They're a little they're they're farther than 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 they should be. It's a, you know, it's a 2-hour drive through a tunnel to to like get to good skiing terrain, but I can see them. I don't have to get on a plane and go to Colorado to ski, right? I think where I'm going with that is that I've come over time to accept the fact that what I write and how I write um, is perfectly natural to me, (laughs) right? Like an earlier poem you said you wanted me to write, it's the first poem in in um, my first book. It's in the Black Nature Anthology. It's called Language, and it, 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 it really has to do with, like, language is the map we build our lives around, is the, the, the final line of that poem. Like, language, our language is informed by where we're from and what we've seen and what we've experienced. And for me, I've seen and experienced a lot of interconnectivity with what I call the greater than human world, um, as well as the human world and all of the history and trauma and drama and um, mistreatment and really beautiful loving treatment that, that comes with being human. And, and, and I guess for me, each new book is exploring all of those complex 
and let's stay in California with this definition. They're, they are stable as the ground underneath us is stable and they are as unstable as the tectonic plates that hold the ground <laughs> that is beneath us are, mm. right? And, and that instability does not contradict the stability, right? Like the ground is stable and also they're shifting tectonic plates, which means that sometimes everything goes a little bit wacky, right? I am always in my writing really interested in those intersections and what what has always been, what has been for a very long time, what feels as close to unchanging about myself and about my world and about history and and social cultural interactions as, as possible. But then also what can change? What can change on a dime? What can change over time? Um, and And what gets revealed? in all of that. So your question was big, and I think my answer is big and a little bit inconclusive because it's it's always, that's always the journey. And I'll figure it out for a little while. I'll figure it out. I'll get it, I'll get it figured out in one book. And then like each answer leads to another set of questions. Which is super exciting because then I have like a new project, right? Like if I like knew that like if I figured it out in the one book and then it's done, I probably would have chosen another way to spend my life because I, I, hope, I hope to live for a long time and I don't want to be done. I don't want you to be done ever. <laughs> And I mean, sometime, I, eventually, I will need to be done. I know. No immediate future. No immediate future. We do have a hard stop in six minutes. Um, I know. I can't believe that. We're it, having so much fun. I know. I'm very sad about that. flew by. I mean, I have, you know, like eight pages of more of questions that I didn't even ask I know. you about. But also... That's okay. That's okay. I'm trying to get a little more feeling like I'm enough or moving away from a maximalist uh, aesthetic towards an, a feeling of enoughness or enoughness for now is a big part of... Uh, my challenge right now. So we started this whole thing. Um, your first question was like what my intention was for um, uh, that I was beginning to formulate for next year. And I'm friends here, a friend from the Bay Area who now lives um, here in Colorado in the same town with me. This woman named Tiffany Hahn. She has a podcast called The Tiffany Hahn Show, which is a delight to listen to. Um, also, and she um, makes mac- mac- macarons uh-huh. that are ridiculously delicious. And she used us as the test case to decide w- which of the flavors were going to be her holiday macarons. And Callie and I had very clear idea about which the winner was and why. And she thanked us. And it was a text exchange we had today. And she's like, thank you. I was going to make both, but because of your very clear 
idea about which one is the winner, I'll just make the one. And I just like offhandedly said, well, you know, it's better to just stay focused and truly delicious Mm. than spread it all out and be (laughs) so-so. And she said, okay, that's my motto for the coming year. Focused and delicious. (laughs) Oh my God. So there you go. Maybe this can be the focused and delicious show. I I love that, Camille. I love that so much. Focused and delicious. You've been listening to episode 97 of Commonplace with writer, scholar, editor, and professor Camille Dungy. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced by me, Valentine Conady, Langa Chinyoka, and Christine LaRusso. Many thanks to Wesleyan University Press, Southern Illinois University Press, Red Hen Press, W.W. Norton, and University of Iowa Press. Thank you to Northwestern University, Ed Roberson, Tiana Clark, and Isaac Miller. The music you're listening to was composed and performed by Judah Darwin Zucker Gorin. You can find his first EP, Just For Now, on Spotify. Thank you to the patrons for supporting the podcast financially. And thank you to all of you who send me or the Commonplace team messages of encouragement and appreciation. And thank you, listener. Thank you for listening. Take care.